Hey guys, it's me, Nancy Jane Smith. Welcome back to The Happier Approach, the show that pulls back the curtain on the need to succeed, hustle, and achieve at the price of our inner peace and relationships. This season, we're talking all about rest. How do you prioritize it? How do you make it truly and sustainably part of your life? We kicked everything off with last week's episode. So if you're interested in how we're framing the season, go back and listen to it. But today, we're taking on a kind of rest umbrella topic, sleep. Anyone who's ever tossed and turned all night knows that when your brain's been going at 100 miles per hour all day, moving from one thing to the next without stopping, it can be really hard to turn that off and fall asleep at night. Sometimes I'll get in bed at 10 o'clock and I can feel the minutes ticking by as my thoughts turn over and over in my head and sleep continues to evade me. Then I sneak a peek at the clock and suddenly it's midnight, foiled again. It's times like those when my monger comes out to play. I beat myself up for not getting to sleep on time despite my best intentions. But that's something I'm learning to work on. When I think of rest, I ultimately think of sleep. The importance of sleep was drilled into me as a child. I always had a much earlier bedtime than my friends, and my dad had a strict quiet rule at 9 p.m. Sleep was valued so much that I developed a lot of unhealthy rules around sleep, specifically what a good person does when it comes to sleep. A good person gets eight hours. A good person doesn't nap. A good person is in bed before 11 and awake before 7 a.m. The earlier I get up, the better of a person I am. And most importantly, no matter how little sleep I have gotten, I soldier on without complaint. Growing up, I unquestioningly followed these rules because I was afraid of what might happen if I was a quote-unquote bad person when it came to sleep. Looking back on this now, as an adult, I am struck by how silly all these rules are and how totally wild it is that they've guided my life. Because of my high-functioning anxiety, they've created great fodder for my monger until recently. Earlier this week, my husband and I had gone to a friend's house for dinner. Nothing crazy, just a couple of glasses of wine, some card games, and a good conversation. We arrived home around 11 p.m., and as I walked upstairs, I thought, okay, it's a school night, and you will be tired tomorrow, but you have a lot to get done. My monger stepped in with her familiar refrain, you aren't going to get enough sleep. You shouldn't have stayed out so late. Well, you'll need to push through it tomorrow. But then, nope. My biggest fan, the voice of self-loyalty replied, pushing isn't how we do it anymore. And for the record, you aren't in school anymore. Something has to give. Either you won't get as much done tomorrow, or you need to sleep in some, or take a nap. Take a nap, my monger replied. What is happening here? You are making her soft. No, I thought. I have time in the morning. If I'm exhausted, I could take a nap. We'll see what happens. My biggest fan is right. I won't be able to write much if I'm tired, so I need to prioritize rest, however that happens, which, amazingly, silenced my monger. 
My monger thinks that rest and thus sleep is for the weak. But what my monger doesn't know is that sleep is kind of magical. It's a time when our bodies and brains can repair themselves after long days of stress. And it's a time that we should all really be taking advantage of. I will say my cat has joined me next to me on my oh, desk. Oh, my cat is right here. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so cute. What's your cat's name? Mama. Mama. Uh, What's your cat's name? Calvin. Calvin. And I'm not going to bring him into the screen because he gets a little surly. This is Dr. Sarah Mednick. She's a professor at UC Irvine in the Department of Cognitive Science and the author of the book, The Power of the Downstate, among others. I study sleep and I study what are all the mechanisms in the brain and body that make sleep so helpful and supportive for our life. But Sarah wasn't always on the path to becoming a neuroscientist. She started out her career as an actor. I had this dream as a child to be an actress. And then I got to New York City and I sort of realized there's got to be more that I can do for this world than just stand on these audition lines. And so I got a job working in a mental hospital at Bellevue, NYU. And I got really excited by just working with people with mental illness and feeling like, you know, this curiosity of what was going on in their brains that made them behave the way they were behaving. And I, and I suddenly realized, you know what, I could actually study the brain. After that experience, Sarah directed all her energy to studying neuroscience. And her background in theater actually made her really good at explaining some of these complicated concepts to a general audience. It's very important that I translate the work that we do in the lab into a palatable and interesting and useful piece of information for, for people out there in the world. How do, you, how do you study sleep? What does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? So we have a seven-bedroom sleep lab at UC Irvine, and what that means is it's basically a 24-hour lab. I have a fleet of amazing undergrads who are trained to do EEG setups. We have people come in for nighttime sleep, and we do a bunch of testing before they get to bed. We test them on memory and emotions and attention and working memory, um, and then we have them sleep in the lab so we can look at their brain activity. And then when they wake up, we have them test on those same tasks again. Sarah and her team compare results to see if any of the functions they tested before the person went to sleep, like memory or attention, have gotten better or worse after a night of rest. You know, they got better on this memory. They had better memory or they had memory loss because of sleep loss. So that's basically how the sleep lab works. So what are the most important functions of sleep? What does it do for your mind and body? Uh, gosh, the list goes on and we still don't really understand what's in this list. Sleep is incredibly important for our restorative functions. Daytime is filled with a lot of energy depletion, right? We're running around, we're doing things, it's very stressful. It uses up our resources. Working out, experiencing stress or anxiety during the day, even things like being social and hanging out with friends or learning new things. All of these little parts of daily life add up and deplete our store of mental and physical energy. So how do we replenish that supply? 
it's very hard when you're awake to do any of these repairing, restorative activities. So that is why the restorative functions of our body have been relegated to sleep because it's the time when we're not taking in new information. Sleep is the one time where it's like, okay, now we're actually out and now we can go into all those reparative modes. Your cardiovascular system and your metabolic system, your guts, all of these um, systems require sleep to calm down and repair and replenish energy resources so to make you ready for the next day. Sarah has seen these reparative modes at work in her sleep lab. When we fall asleep, probably the, the biggest shift that we experience is falling asleep. What you see is when you're awake, your brain is highly active, it's multitasking. A lot of different brain areas are sending electrical signals at different frequencies at the same time, so it's a big mess. When you fall asleep, suddenly everything slows down and everything starts to synchronize. So your EEG starts to get really slow, the electrical signal starts to get really slow, and the whole brain starts to synchronize to the same slow rhythms. The whole brain becomes one big rhythmic beast. Your temperature drops, your heart rate drops. It basically gives your whole body a major rest. Your metabolic system switches into a repair mode and the guts also switch into a repair mode. So it's a huge shift from being awake to being asleep. And that's what Sarah studies, how that switch to repair mode might contribute to memory benefits or emotional benefits. And Sarah says that good sleep and rest can help strengthen those things. But there's really no silver bullet to living a healthy life. It's everything that you're doing in your life to make sure you have really good balance between the forces that make you exert yourself and stress yourself out and the forces that make you calm yourself down and restore yourself. Sarah calls that restorative, restful state the down state. My term, the down state, refers to all of the restorative practices that we have to engage in on a regular basis to keep us fully restored and to keep our resources high and to keep us in a good, balanced, um, happy, strong state. The idea is that, you know, we are rhythmic animals and rhythms give us two things. One is the up state where we need to get out in the world and do things. And it requires a lot of energy to put on our clothes and go to work and you know deal with people. All these things, they require a lot of energy and a lot of resources. And what has to follow in a rhythm is that you have an upstate followed by a downstate where you can then restore all of those resources that you used up in the upstate. But Sarah says, and as I think we all know, our society really emphasizes the up state. What we need to do is remember that we need to repair and we need to you know, get back to a balanced state by spending a lot of time in the down state to make sure that we're sort of ready for the next up state. In society now, we put a lot of emphasis on, well, what are you doing? How hard are you training? Or how are you training? Or what are you eating? What that go, go, go mentality fails to take into consideration is that the restorative work our bodies and minds do in this downstate can actually lead to better focus and more energy. 
Say you're just starting your workout. The first time, it's incredibly difficult and energy exerting. And when you're done, you're exhausted and you're breathing heavy and your body is sent into a stress mode. And what happens then is your autonomic nervous system immediately starts to work to get you into the rest and digest mode. It restores all of your nutrients and energy resources. But what it also does is if you stay in that rest for a little bit longer than, you know, just kind of get in and get out, you actually top yourself up with more resources and more nutrients because your body's like, oh my God, that was so terrifying. I never want to be at such a loss for resources and so exhausted again. So your body actually gives you more resources. You get more glycogen and you, you develop more ATP than you had before so that the next time you can actually work out harder. You know, you can work out a little bit longer. You can get a little bit further along in your goal. And then the next time when you work out, you need to then have another down state that doesn't just have a short down state, but an extended down state that gives you that extra bit of resources. Sarah says this principle holds true across all kinds of day-to-day activities. When you're doing learning or, you know, when you're in a classroom and you're suddenly learning information, you know, the amount of sleep that you have after your class is going to determine how well you do in terms of being tested, right? So this is stuff that, you know, the down state matters equally, if not more, than what you're actually doing when you're in your upstate. So how can we take time to engage with the downstate in all the hullabaloo of our busy lives? The first place to look is in your breath. So usually what we're doing when we're in our day-to-day is we're breathing pretty rapidly and pretty shallowly. We're kind of speaking all the way through our breath and not taking very deep breaths. When we're working, there's something called email apnea, where you open up your email and you just stop breathing. What the heck? I totally get email apnea. It's a panic response to the world where you suddenly get into the shallow breath or you just stop breathing. And so one of the most powerful ways to counteract that is to have deep, slow breaths. I'm going to um, intentionally do slow, deep breathing. And that shows a huge expanse in restore mode. And so there's many ways that you can do that throughout your day. You know, when you're driving, when you're in the store, when you're cooking, you know, when you're sitting there doing your email, you could do this. You don't need an app to do meditation, but you can do meditation practice. Any of these restorative practices, they start with breath because the breath is so important to bring in that restorative response. Even things like feeling loved and supported, anything that makes you feel calm, creates that restorative response and helps you tap into the downstate in your everyday life. So being with friends, um, holding hands, being out in nature, you take in all the phytochemicals that are in the um, woods that are helpful for your immune system. And then also, how you plan your day. So what time do you exercise? What kind of exercise are you doing? And what time do you eat? And what kind of foods are you eating? I guess really starting to think about yourself as a 24-hour cycling animal. (laughs) Everything that you do will help you, you know, tap into that rhythm and then resonate with it. The Happy Approach is sponsored by Self-Loyalty School. 
Self-loyalty school is designed for people who've tried all the things and are still struggling to quiet their high-functioning anxiety. It has small bite-sized lessons delivered via a private podcast feed. Because there are daily bite-sized lessons for you to listen to, it requires a daily recommitment to self-loyalty. Trust me, I've tried all the things. Meditation, walking, exercise, coaching, and therapy. And they're all fantastic, but I could never do them consistently until I built self-loyalty. I've been doing this work for over 20 years, and I finally have figured out self-loyalty is the key to quieting high-functioning anxiety. When I was finally loyal and kind to myself, I wanted to practice the things that helped. Without self-loyalty, I am pushing, hustling, trying to accomplish the next thing, and letting that monger and my anxiety run the show. If you're intrigued, head over to selfloyaltyschool.com to learn more. So like so much of this stuff is just like rest is good. Rest is important. But my gosh, even though I've devoted my life to this and I know this is so important, I go kicking and screaming into rest. Like it is something I don't want to do. I don't want to breathe. I don't, you know, I know I need to go outside and I do the things and I sound like, I sound awful, but I'm just saying like, how do you- You sound human. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I am 100% with you, sister. (laughs) Uh, It's so hard. It's so hard. And it drives me crazy because I'm like, I know this will help me, but I am such a buyer of the upstate Western push, push, push mentality. I mean, we are living in a world where we absolutely are driven to ignore our downstates and we are praised and and validated for working ourselves to exhaustion Mm -hmm. um, and not having any sort of really good relationship between our activity and repose. We lionize overwork. We lionize, you know, burning the candle at both ends. I have such a hard time getting to bed on time. You know, I have such a hard time not watching another Netflix show. We live in this world of like more is better. So it's actually very important to think about creating systems where when you are in that moment of having to make the decision, you don't have to actually make a decision. You just have a schedule. For example, it's 9.45 and I'm thinking about watching another episode of Love Island. But if I'm sticking to my schedule and I plan to go to sleep at 10 p.m., that scaffolding gives me incentive to honor my commitment to rest. I think putting as many of these kind of structures in place when you're awake and alert and in a good head um, Then when you get to that time when you actually have to be faced with the decision, you've already made the decision and this is just what you do. But it's, you know, it's hard for everybody. But I was curious, as someone who studies rest and sleep, had Sarah's relationship to rest changed over time as she studied the downstate? Well, I'm turning 50. Oh, I am too. (laughs) Oh, congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. You too. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. I think I definitely can feel I used to be able to tolerate a lot more upstate. And I have far less tolerance now. I have a lot more, not no, but just prioritization of the things that matter to me. So that's, I guess, how things have changed, is love matters, family matters, my career and mentoring matters. So 
I'm much better at being able to tell myself, does this serve me? And mm-hmm. ask myself that question. And then if it doesn't, I'm okay with saying no and doing something that does serve me. And rest is definitely a mega part of that, right? Because there's things that you have to sort of say no to. Yeah. Because they really feel like they're going against this natural wave of, you know, this is the amount of energy I have right now. And then I've got to go into my downstate. And if I do this extra thing, that doesn't serve me. So I think I've just become way, way better at determining what does. My conversation with Sarah helped me to realize how important it is for my health, my overall well-being, and even for my focus and productivity to listen to the voice of my biggest fan when I need to prioritize rest. Last we'd left off, I'd finally been able to quiet my monger and let myself have a night of uninterrupted rest. The next morning, my alarm cat, Calvin, began our morning by tapping on my face from his perch on my nightstand. When I rolled over groggily, I saw that he had let me sleep in. I felt fantastic. And amazingly, my monger was still silent. Playing defense, my biggest fan stepped in to say, Yay! You feel refreshed and ready to start the day. It wasn't your normal amount of sleep, but hopefully you won't be exhausted and will get a lot of writing done. Those words were enough to quiet my monger. You will still be productive was all she needed to hear. And that is the truth. The more I rest, drink water, move my body, and eat healthy food, the more focused and productive I am. Rest doesn't come naturally to me. But the more I can break my own rest rules and build self-loyalty, the less my high-functioning anxiety runs the show. That's it for this week. In our next episode, we'll talk to Jessica Snow, a meditation and imagination artist who brings a sense of wonder and magic into everyday rest. That's next time on The Happier Approach. The Happy Approach is produced by Nikki Stein and me, Nancy Jane Smith. Music provided by Pod5 and Epidemic Sound. For more episodes, to get in touch, or to learn more about quieting high-functioning anxiety, you can visit nancyjanesmith.com. And if you like the show, leave us a review. It actually helps us out a lot. Thanks to Dr. Sarah Mednick for speaking with us today. You can learn more about Sarah and buy her book, The Power of the Downstate, at sarahmednick.com. That's S-A-R-A-M-E-D-N-I-C-K.com. Take care.